Welcome to the Occult London podcast. This is a new podcast dedicated to exploring magic, mysticism, the Kabbalah, as well as other topics. If you like the podcast, please write a review and rate us on iTunes as it will really help us to get this message out there. Also, be sure to visit our website at occultlondon.co.uk where you can subscribe to the show. I hope you enjoy it. In today's episode, we will be talking um, a bit more about the Tetragrammaton and its significance in relation to the Kabbalistic Tree of Life. Over the past couple of episodes, we have been through some of the history, the origins of this sacred word. And in the last episode, we started to discuss some of the elements from a Kabbalistic perspective. So in this one, we will be continuing on the Kabbalistic vein. The Tetragrammaton is is very important in terms of... Previous episode, we have been discussing the Tetragrammaton from a Kabbalistic point of view. In this particular episode, we will be continuing this discussion talking about some of the important aspects from a Kabbalistic point of view, from a traditional point of view, um, so they can help us to really sort of start to understand the um, sacred importance of this magical and extremely sacred word. One of the aspects that's quite interesting about the Tetragrammaton to start with is it is very much connected with the concept or the idea of Zim-Zum, which is contraction. This is a process that meant to occur before the first emanation of Keter. So it's before the arising from the void of non-existence, where the divine, in order to have a relationship with the world, contracts, thus creating space for the creation to exist. If you think about this from the idea of a relationship, for instance, it's a bit like the energy of each partner contracts in order for the to allow the relationship to grow. Obviously, when you're you know dating people, etc., you have to make um, adjustments, don't you? You don't, you can't just be a hundred percent yourself because it doesn't work like that. It's almost like two orbits that come into come coming together and there has to be some contraction to allow for that kind of space to grow that is basically what we're talking about when we talk about zimzom this process of zimzom is is a term often used in the lurianic kabbalah um and it, it really sort of explains yeah as i said this idea that the divine began this process of creation by contracting that infinite light that infinite power in order to allow for this space to occur in which there's an infinite and a finite realms existing simultaneously at the same time so it's a very difficult concept to get your head around but um yeah interesting nonetheless so before keta comes into being there's this unending, this limitless, limitless divine essence, really. It's one way you could describe it. However, in order for Keter to come into being, 
the divine needs to turn in upon himself and thereby creates this vacuum where he was not present or at least you know there's a different level of presence anyway and this is meant to have involved bringing a this sort of imbalance through the power of critical judgment in some texts this concept of zimzum this movement within the Ain Soft or the Limit Limitless Avoid is meant to have been accomplished with the aid of a miraculous piece of clothing or a cloth. Um, it's also sometimes described as a primordial Torah, which is known as a Malbush. This was not meant to have been separate from the divine, but not really part of his being either. It's It's kind of a a thing that exists. Um, this magical garment was meant to have been the total length of 22 Hebrew letters forming 231 gates, which is the total number of possible combinations of the two letters. So it's Aleph, Beth, Aleph, Gimel, Aleph, Daleth, etc. And we'll do an episode on some of the Hebrew letters later on as well, um, because it is interesting and it can be particularly useful if you're learning the tarot, um, if you want to kind of understand the paths of the tree of life in a bit more detail, it's really good to know that sort of Hebrew um, element to it. The breadth of this garment is meant to have been measured by the hem, composed of four extended forms of the tetragrammaton, uh, whereby it's meant to have been possible to write out each of the letters of the tetragrammaton in four different ways, and each is meant to have had a different value. This is described quite nicely by Donald Tyson um, as follows, and I quote, This garment is, is said to be twice the area necessary to cover the entire universe. After it was woven, it was folded back upon itself. The names of the 45 and 52 fell behind and were shadowed by the names of 72 and 63. And as a consequence, the final yod in the name of 63 was left without a partner. By the contraction of the garment, a void was created in the Ainsof that was not the same as the Ainsof itself. The single remaining letter of the Tetragrammaton, the Yod, served as the instrument through which was transferred the infinite holy radiance of the Ainsof into the shadow that lay beneath the folded garments of the primordial Torah. This light became the fiery spheres or vessels of the Sephiroth that exist within the primordial point. Keta is no more than an infinitesimal speck in the endless expanse of deity, yet that speck is large enough to comprehend all things. This process is also described quite nicely by Isaac Salrag as follows. Its length was made up of the alphabets of the Sefer Yetzirah and had 231 gates. And by gates they mean possible combinations of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. These gates have formed the architecture of divine thought. Its breadth was composed of an elaboration of the Tetragrammaton according to the numerical value of the four possible spellings of the fully written names of its letters. And that's a quote from 
Isaac, Saurag. The tetragrammaton is also very important from a, a gematria point of view as well. Gematria, if people aren't aware, is a, a, a technique that's employed you know, by lots of magicians in the Western Mystery Tradition um, as well as more traditional Kabbalists as well, uh, whereby different letters will um, have different meanings, they have a numerical value, and combinations of the Hebrew letters can can really bring you different insights into, you know, realisations for meditations, um, or particularly, you know, when you're studying different texts as well. Um, it's a very kind of interesting technique which can give you some real good insights and ideas. The Tetragrammaton, um, comprising of the word, the letters Yod, Hey, Val, Hey, adds up to 26 as follows. So Yod has the value of 10, Hey has the value of 5, Val has the value of 6, and, and the final Hey has the value of 5. This gives us the number 26, which has quite a lot of different symbolism. Um, and there's lots of different, uh, different things that kind of add up to that, but... If we divide the number 26, we get 13, which has important symbols in that it, that is the number of love and also achad, which means unity. So symbolically, we get this really nice idea of representing the divine love, uniting the different aspects of creation. This um, idea of this sort of divine love, loving presence, is particularly emphasized by the famous medieval Kabbalist Rabbi Abu Lafia, who said, and I quote, the name of God is composed of two parts since there are two parts of love. Divided between two lovers and love turn one when love becomes actuated. The divine intellectual love and the human intellectual love are conjuncted being one. This is the great power of man. He can link the lower part with the higher and the lower part will ascend and cleave to the higher and the higher part will descend and kiss the entity ascending towards it. Like a bridegroom actually kisses his bride out of his great and real desire characteristic to the delight of both from the power of the name of God. The number is also significant as it is also the sum of the numbers of the Sephiroth on the, on the middle pillar. Um, so we have 1 plus 6 plus 9 plus 10 gives us 26. Which again is interesting because obviously the middle pillar is the pillar of balance. It's the pillar of harmony. It's that pillar of light that's drawing us up towards our holy guardian angel, towards our higher selves, uniting all aspects of our being. And obviously with the tetragrammaton, that's really beautiful, I think. And from a number point of view, numbers are very important in the Kabbalah and the tree of life and you could really argue that or not argue it is true it's defined by two numerical structures so you have obviously the tetragrammaton which is the expansion of zero into four 
and then you have the tree of the Sephirot, which is defined by the numbers 1 to 10. Both of these models demonstrate this flow and this process and the sequence by which the divine artist, the divine creator, the divine architect, whatever you want to call it, manifests spiritual substance into the material form of the world we see around us. In this amazing sequence, we can basically imagine that each step of the process is a more condensed, or it gives more form to the substance of the stage preceding it. So obviously Malkut at the bottom of the tree becomes the almost like the end product or the kind of bringing together of all those different emanations down through the tree. Um, and the task then is obviously the, the returning path, going back up. Because again, contraction is not just for Keta, it's contract the whole tree is contracting. And this is symbolic of of life as well. Everything has a beginning, everything has an end, everything is in a cycle or a pendulum. We go from one side to another. And the four letters of the Tetragrammaton really um, represent the different stages of this process. First, we have Yod, ultimate power. This is the oneness coming out of the divine. Second, we've got the first hay of the Tetragrammaton, which is really sort of the beginnings of definition of the individual and sort of special qualities as well. Then we have the vow, which is the separation, and it is this kind of recombination of different powers, of different qualities to form new forms. And then we have manifestation itself, which is really the, the final hay. And this idea of this, the, the Tetragrammaton being this process of from sort of the divine artist down through to manifestation is explained quite well in a nice essay by Schrager Friedman titled The Tetragrammaton Formula. And I quote God, existing in his essential and absolute unity, is exalted and distinct from material manifestation. As such, he is considered as a fifth state, existing behind manifest creation. This fifth state is the source from which the four letters or phrases of the Tetragrammaton are projected. This concept implies a direct relationship between the four letters of the Tetragrammaton and the four elements of classical philosophy, which in turn, correspond directly to the four states of matter in modern physics. These four elements are fire, energy, water, liquid, air, gases, and earth solids. These are the four distinguishable manifestations of the source substance, which Pythagoras termed quintessence. In Latin writing, quinta essentia literally means 
fifth substance. And that's a quote from Schrager Friedman, the Tetragrammaton formula. On this idea of formula, I just want to quickly talk about the Tetragrammaton and the Pythagorean triangle as well, which is quite interesting. If you place a if the tetragrammaton is placed in the shape of a Pythagorean triangle or a tetractus, the total value of the letters is 72, if you use Dumatria, which is the uh, technique that I mentioned earlier. And this is also the number of the Shemham Meferesh, which we'll be doing a separate episode on. However, in a nutshell, um, basically traditionally the name was referred to as the Shemham Meferesh, or the distinctive excellent name. And this this kind of title is often assigned by magicians and occultists to the 72 names of the three letters which can be extracted using gematria from the three verses of Exodus which we discussed in the previous episode. A Hebrew tetractus has the letters of the tetragrammaton inscribed on the 10 positions of the tetractus so it's from right to left and if you Google this, you should be able to find an image of this. And in this way, it enables us to see the expansion from the initial yod to the full name through the four worlds. And it also, interestingly, illustrates the Sephiroth because you have letters which correspond to the ten spheres with the apex of the triangle being yod. As Dion Fortune wrote, the point is assigned to Keter, the line to Hochma the two-dimensional plane to Bina. Consequently, the three-dimensional solid naturally falls to Kesed. From the perspective of the Shem, we can also thus see it as being an expression that can be used to essentially climb back up the tree, or it's like a vehicle that we can climb back up the tree. We'll talk about the Shem Ham Meferesh in another episode, but as I said, it's derived from Exodus 14.19, and each of the verses contains 72 letters in the original Hebrew, which are then translated into English. And they are as follows. And the angel of Elohim, who went before the camp of Israel, removed and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud removed from before them, and stood behind them. And it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness here. Yet gave it light by night there, and the one came not near the other all the night. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and Adonai caused the sea to go back. By a strong east wind all the night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. In some traditions the sacred name is not just four letters long but actually 72 letters long um, and traditionally it was said that the high priest would have communed with the divine being using the 72 letter name of God which would have been inscribed on a really long piece of parchment and folded and hidden inside a breastplate. And this is described in the book of Exodus. 
and this was meant to have been known as the breastplate of Aaron or the breastplate of judgment or the priestly breastplate and it was apparently made of gold with 12 different gemstones on the outside and two sacred stones of onyx which were known as Urim and Thurim placed inside. The legend has it that when one of the congregation would ask the priest a question on the sacred laws the priest would then invoke the name of the creator the divine name and then the 12 jewels and the breastplate would light up there's a very detailed description of this as well which is really interesting um, it's meant to have had four rows of gems with three in each and was worn over the top of a robe and I quote and thou shalt put the two stones upon the shoulders of the ephod for stones of memorial unto the children of Israel and Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord upon his two shoulders for a memorial and thou shalt make pouches of gold and two chains of pure gold at the ends of wreathen work shalt thou make them and fasten the wreathen chains to the pouches and thou shalt make the breastplate of judgment with cunning work after the work of the ephod thou shalt make it of gold of blue and of purple and of scarlet and of fine twined linen shalt thou make it four square it shall be being doubled a span shall be the length thereof and a span shall be the breadth thereof and thou shalt set it in settings of stones even four rows of stones and that's describing this uh, breastplate of Aaron which is very interesting Um, there's been some debate around that in various different texts about the actual list of stones that would have been in the breastplate with many uh, different authors kind of um, disagreeing on which stones would have worked. Nobody knows for sure, unfortunately, um, what stones they were or how it would have been created or worn. And... Yes, it's one of these things that, you know, it's a fascinating, fascinating mythology um, and, you know, worth thinking about in more detail. And obviously that's quite interesting from the point of view of, you know, lost technologies as well. Um, you know, we have lots of, there's lots of stories from obviously ancient Egypt, from um, different mythologies around the world about you know, these fantastical weapons, um, breastplates, armour, swords, hammers as well. Um, and it's interesting when you think about, you know, obviously you can always look at these things from a spiritual point of view, but perhaps there may be more to it than that as well. It could We could be looking at a lost technology, potentially. That's all we've got time for tonight. Um, I wanted to finish with a quote from... Plotinus 
When there enters into it a glow from the divine, the soul gathers strength, spreads true wings, and however distracted by its proximate environment, speeds its buoyant way to something greater. Its very nature bears it upwards, lifted by the giver of that love. Surely we need not wonder that it possesses the power to draw the soul to itself, calling it back from every wandering to rest before it. From it came everything. Nothing is mightier. Thanks very much for joining us this week on the Occult London Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Please make sure to visit our website at occultlondon.co.uk where you can subscribe to the show. Thank you and good night.